0: Everyone. Last spring, Coriam was invited to the Society of General Internal Medicine, SGM's, national conference, and we had the privilege of covering parts of the conference, and I had the pleasure of working with my colleague, Dr. Clem Lee.
1: The pleasure was all mine, Shreya. There were a few workshops that stood out to us around the themes of nutrition and obesity.
0: Yeah, some of the points were pretty thought-provoking, and actually Clem and I recorded the sound bites from those workshops, so you'll hear them as Clem and I recap some of the big takeaways on nutrition and obesity.
1: We will link the info in our show notes at the end if you want details on these specific workshops and presenters. Great.
0: So as a heads up, Clem, why don't you give a rundown with some of the big buckets we're going to cover today?
1: Yeah. First, we're going to get into what the current trends are in weight and dieting, then dive into some nitty gritty recommendations for specific food groups and diets and with some tips to make these changes long lasting.
0: Clem, Aside from having a nutrition master's, I'm curious what makes you so passionate about the topic?
1: Yeah, I think in medicine, there's a tendency for people to gravitate towards some of these sexier things like cathing people or stress testing or listing someone for transplant. But I personally feel like this is one of the most important things we can address for our patients.
2: When we look at the risk factors that contribute to death in the U.S., dietary risk factors actually top the list at number one.
0: Number one. Yeah. And I think whether or not patients express this or not, they also know what they eat is so important. Just take a look at some of these statistics.
3: At any given time, more than half the US adult population is trying to lose weight. 97% of obese adults have ever attempted a diet and 20% have had more than 20 diet attempts.
1: Yeah. And to make matters worse, we as clinicians are not good at supporting our obese patients and I think even contribute to weight bias.
2: In fact, the two most common places at the top of the list are actually family members and doctors. Those are the top two offenders. It's kind of a gut punch for us to be at the very top of this list of sources of weight bias for people. If you survey medical students, you'll find that three-fourths of them have an implicit weight bias, which is maybe not surprising, but I think particularly stunning is that two-thirds actually report an explicit or consciously held weight bias, which is just kind of remarkable and, and unsettling.
1: Yeah, I didn't think I was going to be as drawn to that portion of the discussion on bias as I was, just because I feel like recently I've been inundated in media about bias and injustice. But I've actually found that portion to be so enlightening, and maybe that's where I need to check my own biases. Sometimes we think we're motivating our patients by scaring them or alarming them about how bad their weight is, but the workshop on addressing obesity from their front lines sort of debunked
2: that. So the first thing to know is that stigma actually decreases healthy behaviors. So I think there's sometimes this thought out there, people are a little afraid to say, but they kind of feel like, oh, well, maybe people with obesity, they should feel a little ashamed because that's going to motivate them. It's been demonstrated that the experience of weight bias, shaming and stigma decreases physical activity, increases binge eating, increases total caloric intake and increases the risk for eating disorders.
0: This was really good food for thought for me. You know, I actually have to admit, I kind of like the scare tactic. I think sometimes I feel like, okay, if I can get my patients to kind of wake up and take things more seriously, if I really warn them about lung cancer, about quitting smoking, they will, or maybe they'll take their blood pressure meds if I tell them that a stroke can happen. But I really appreciate hearing the research a bit more and telling me to be a little bit more thoughtful in my approach when it comes to counseling about weight. All right, Clem. The next big part, particularly that the food as medicine workshop dug into was how do we actually talk to our patients about nutrition, especially when you're limited on time?
4: We talked about time barriers just in the, in the clinic visit, but I found that if you can, with practice, taking just a quick 24-hour dietary recall is a really good way to start a conversation.
1: Yeah, I love using the dietary recall, but it doesn't really always capture what all our patients eat. In the workshop, they brought up this interesting case of a patient who was a truck driver and basically lives two different lives.
2: What is his schedule like when he leaves home? Is he gone for days or is he gone for a day or two days? Can he pack some snacks from home?
1: So you need to think about what this man has in life one and the foods that he has in life two. So I think it's just a little bit more complex. I don't think I really always think about that in clinic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was a bit pampered in my prior clinic where the front desk would actually give a sheet for the patients to fill out while they were in the waiting room about what they ate in the last five days and was so helpful because it one saved me time, but also was a much better biopsy about what they were actually eating. But of course, you know, you got to work with whatever resources you have and the 24-hour recall is good too.
1: I can't say I've been lucky enough to have those special resources in my clinic, but the Nutrition mythbuster Workshop mentioned how easy it is to have cultural blind spots and recommend that patients from other cultures switch to healthier foods that we're personally comfortable with, like Western food. In that instance, we can actually be doing them some harm. Take a look at some of these studies looking at Mexican food.
4: Those eating a traditional Mexican diet actually improved their insulin resistance significantly compared to those eating a more U.S. healthy diet. And in another study looking at Hispanics in the US, those who had access to a more traditional Hispanic food store actually had better health outcomes than those who were purchasing Americanized food.
0: Yeah, I have actually easily fallen into that trap. I had a patient from Ethiopia who had new diabetes and I actually told him to stop eating injera. At that time, I didn't know what it was and he described it to me as Ethiopian bread. So I said, oh, bread's not good. And thankfully, my preceptor was just like, actually, that was not good medical advice because injera has tons of protein. So I was pretty humbled by that experience.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's good that you learned that early on in training. I'm not entirely sure I still know what Endura is. <laughs> <laughs> Aww, we are learning. Okay. I'm going to move us on to probably the most compelling point in all of the talks that I went to at Gym. If there's one thing I want everyone to take away, it's this.
5: After we get past a diet high in sodium, which is our top dietary risk, Everything else that has a significant impact is something that we are missing or not getting enough of. And if we frame our conversation with our patients not around all the foods we want them to stop having and instead make the conversation about, hey, I would love for you to get more fruit. I would love for you to find a way to incorporate seeds into your diet. And you give them specific examples and suggestions. It feels like a much more positive lifestyle shift for them to consider ways to get the good stuff that's missing.
0: Wow, it is so easy to have nutrition counseling be totally surrounding that. Hey, don't eat this. Don't do that. Don't take this. Do it this way.
1: Yeah. It feels like we're just parents slapping the hands of kids. But after limiting salt, the most bang for your patient's bucks are going to be adding nutritious foods, not taking things away from them.
0: All right. So Clem, everyone knows what the nutritious foods are, right? Fruits, veggies, et cetera, et cetera. But Clem, I'm curious, what about the SGM workshops really kind of elevated that conversation for you with regard to healthy food groups? You know, like what stood out to you with regard to fruits and veggies, the protein food group, the carb food group?
1: Yeah, this is a portion of the talk that really spoke to the data junkie in me. I really appreciated all the information that was presented. And I just love having tangible numbers to give my patients.
0: Oh, yes. Actually, that reminds me of that graph that one of the workshops showed. I think it was probably the food is life one where it was showing that the higher the number of fruits and veggies a day, the higher the mortality benefit, which of course is a no brainer. And what I really appreciated was just seeing that inflection point and seeing that in the graph, you get the most bang for your buck if you get up to three to four servings of fruits and veggies a day.
1: Yeah, this has caused me to change my practice to tell my patients really aim for those four servings a day. There are certain patients, if I give them that exact number, it motivates them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I've now shown that graphic, which again, we're going to link in our show notes to my family. And it's it's been helpful, but my husband kindly gave me some pushback initially. And he's just like, you know what, Shreya, this is really helpful, but I would just rather reach for some pizza than some veggies.
5: Sometimes just changing the way that we cook a vegetable can improve the flavor profile. For example, steamed Brussels sprouts have never been my favorite, but roasted Brussels sprouts have a wonderful flavor profile.
0: All right. Roasted it is. We are going to try some roasted Brussels sprouts. Clem, that's all veggies. What about the food group of proteins? Were there any good nuggets on
1: proteins? Any good chicken nuggets, you mean? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Thanks. (laughs) Bad joke. Um, I like learning the concept of a meat extender. It's definitely something I had never heard of before, but they were explaining it as legumes or canned beans or some other protein that you can add to a meat dish that is cheaper than the meat, but actually acts as a meat and makes the dish last longer.
0: Oh yeah, I hadn't heard that term meat extender either. I'm sure the evidence-based minded person in you really appreciated that they brought up an RCT that was published in JAMA that indicated just having even one serving of legumes daily decreased A1C significantly. I also really appreciate that the estrogen presenters had some practical tips of things we should be reminding our
2: patients. Some tips for incorporating legumes into your diet are if you rinse the canned beans, you can not only reduce the amount of sodium, but you can also help minimize the gas-producing agents that cause distress.
0: Yeah. Also nice reminder for me to not cut corners and rinse out all that sodium out of the beans thoroughly. So much appreciated all around. What about carbs, Clem? Were there anything that stood out to you about the carbs?
1: Yeah. The Busting Nutrition myths Workshop made a really good point to switch from short grain to long grain rice.
4: One of the perhaps easiest switches is to go from a short grain to a long grain rice. You get a little bit of a slower glucose absorption and a slower spike
1: if you're doing the long grain rice. So the more surface area you have, the higher the glycemic index will be. This is sort of counterintuitive, but short grains actually have a higher surface area to glucose ratio. And so they're worse for your sugar control. And um, you might be wondering what short grains are. They're things like sushi rice and sticky rice.
0: Ah, Things I unfortunately love.
1: Uh, I know, me too, Shrey. And long grains are better for you because they're more spread out and have a lower surface area to glucose ratio. Examples of this are jasmine rice, or I might butcher this pronunciation, Shrey, basmati rice.
0: Ah, oh, you actually said it right this time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basmati. Yeah, perfect. Good, good. Thumbs up. All right, so Clem, you also have a master's in nutrition, as I mentioned. So I'm curious if we're kind of sitting and thinking about these different food groups, were there any things that you remember from that time in your life that just really surprised you that you want everyone else to know about?
1: Yeah, this is actually one of my pet peeves in the food industry. Food labeling in general can be so misleading. So companies are legally allowed to put the term whole grain on the box if there's just 51% of whole grain in the food. So even if 49% of it is refined, they can call that food whole grain. In addition, they can use tags like multi-grain or made with whole grain or a good source of whole grain for anything that's less than 50% whole grain. So if you're really trying to get all whole grains in your food, you really have to look for the tag 100% whole grain because that guarantees it.
0: That is wild. Even like someone marking up something like just 51% whole grain.
1: Yikes. Yeah, that doesn't seem mathematically correct. But don't get me started with trans fats. That's even more ridiculous where companies are allowed to round down from 0.5 grams to zero grams of trans fats per serving. So if you're eating, let's say, a bag of chips, and it has 0.5 grams of trans fat per serving, but you think you're getting zero, and you sit there and you have four servings of it, you just ate two grams of trans fats total, even though you thought you had zero.
0: Uh, again, Even without knowing it, gosh, I am so humbled because I'm always trying to encourage patients and empower them saying, read those food labels and make good decisions for yourself. But I kind of feel at a loss after hearing that because... It sounds like we can't even trust the, the numbers on the food label. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash All right,
1: Shreya, time for a pop quiz. I'll start off with a low ball. Mediterranean diet, good or bad?
0: Obviously good. I think it's pretty common knowledge it has good health outcomes. But I also appreciate hearing that it's also pretty cost efficient.
4: The dietary cost of adhering to the Mediterranean diet was about $2 per week per patient or $100 per year per patient. The money that they spent on vegetables was offset by the money they saved on red meat and processed meats.
0: The hard part though is actually operationalizing cooking a Mediterranean diet. I sometimes feel like, oh gosh, I have to like console a chef or something. But another takeaway was it doesn't need to be this fancy thing. Like small things, just like adding nuts, eating fish can go a long way.
1: Yeah. And some of you might have handouts from your clinics already, but we'll also link to a website in our show notes for your patients who want to try a Mediterranean diet.
0: So that's the Mediterranean diet. Another diet that I think a lot of patients are doing is intermittent fasting. It's so prevalent with just it being all over social media. And so I'm glad the estrogen presenters covered it. And I think one thing I really liked was having some potential pathophys backup of why it could work.
3: The crux of this theory of intermittent fasting is that by having periods of fasting, so we're talking as few as 8 to 12 hours, as high as 20 or more hours, your body is kind of signaled that you're in an energy-poor state, that you're, you know, evolutionarily, this is the times, you know, you had feast and you had famine. So when you're in famine, your body switched from burning glucose that's produced in the liver to ketone bodies that are produced by the adipocytes. And the effects of this is that there's really profound changes in cellular signaling pathways that move your body away from some of those more energy-dependent growth and plasticity processes more towards repair and healing
0: so interesting to think about our bodies switching from burning glucose to ketones with intermittent fasting. I think my brother actually does intermittent fasting, but he does it where like he only eats from 11 to eight. But it sounds like from the estrogen presenters that people can do intermittent fasting in all sorts of ways. You know, Maybe they eat normally for a few days and then fast on a few other days. But Clem, I think you were telling me you're not as excited about intermittent fasting. You don't really buy it as much. And I'm curious if you can kind of speak a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I feel like at the end of the day, you're cutting down calories either way. One study that they brought up compared intermittent fasting with daily caloric restriction, and there was really no difference in weight loss and metabolic parameters at the end of the study. So maybe that's why I'm not that excited about it. Ultimately, it's about just eating fewer calories.
3: So what do we do with that? What do we tell our patients? I think what we can say with relative certainty is that calorie restriction is almost certainly a good thing. We've been studying that since the 1930s and in species after species and in paper after paper, we see that calorie restriction is good for longevity and for preventing progression of chronic disease and development of chronic disease. I think it's probably a little too early to say the same thing for intermittent fasting. So we'll have to keep an eye on the literature for that. But all in all, the long-term benefits of intermittent fasting do seem mostly net neutral to net positive. All right. So
0: intermittent fasting probably won't hurt your patients at the end of the day. So whatever method they can stick to to get their health where they want it to be, we should encourage it.
1: Yeah. But word of caution, the SGM presenters did bring up one fad diet we should try to discourage. And that's juicing. Juicing can actually lead to insulin resistance.
0: Yeah. And I think at one point, I feel like all my friends were juicing and I didn't have any evidence-based perspective to tell them. I think there's just so much good marketing about how much antioxidants there are.
3: Just because we're getting more antioxidants doesn't necessarily mean it's all a good thing. The dark side of juicing, as kind of evidence in this huge BMJ study... Now, this is a prospective cohort study that came out in 2013 with over 151,000 participants followed up from the 80s until 2009. So a really impressive cohort in which they looked at fruit consumption, fruit juice consumption, and the risk of type 2 diabetes. So what they found was that the more fruit juice you drink, the more likely you were to have type 2 diabetes.
0: Wow. Increases the risk of diabetes. Who would have thought? It's interesting to even think about the reason as to why juicing increases diabetes.
3: Well, we know that when you take a whole apple and you change it from an apple into a juice, you take out all the fiber. You're left with just sugar. It's antioxidants, sugar, water. So when you take out that fiber, you increase the glycemic index of the food, which means that it leads to bigger changes in vivo of serum glucose and insulin concentrations. And the theory is that over time, with this repeated insult, your body responds by having decreased insulin sensitivity.
1: I think we do have to keep in mind that that study was so large, it probably included patients who are drinking store-bought juices. And they're different. Homemade juices probably have less badness overall.
0: Very true. Very true. And especially if they're doing homemade juices, I think the person has brought up a good point that we should just take a moment and ask how they're making those juices at home.
1: Yeah, that's because juicers are a hard no. They take out all the good stuff. But if our patients are using a blender, then it depends on the type of blender. Some blenders are better than others, and some blenders are worse and are essentially juicers that take out all the fibers.
0: Ah, right. We should be recommending to our patients something called a nutrient extractor blender, something I actually hadn't heard of before, but probably, and it's a little counterintuitive the name to me, but these are things that you probably have heard of, which is Vitamix and Ninja. Those kind of blenders are, are much better for that fiber.
3: The point of these blenders being that they're super powerful and that the whole fruit goes in and the whole fruit comes out. So you get to keep all
1: the fiber. Yeah. And I'm all for people drinking four kale smoothies a day. But if your patients aren't used to that much fiber, you might want to warn them up front that they might experience a little bit of GI upset afterwards.
0: <laughs> I have uh, learned that the hard way. I'll save you from a TMI story. But yes, I always remember to mention this to patients in terms of make sure they're upping their water intake simultaneously. All right, the last bit we thought was interesting was just a couple tips on how can we help our patients make substantial changes sustainably. The first one actually surprised me to hear. It was actually hearing that weighing yourself daily, counting calories are actually associated with keeping weight off.
3: And that would be the general trends being patients who weigh themselves every day tend to have more success, having some self-monitoring of intake, uh, using apps, or being in a structured uh, weight loss program, engaging in regular exercise.
0: Yeah, I feel like the advice on blogs and other places are just, you know, don't weigh yourself daily. It'll get you down. um, Do it more on a weekly basis. It seems like the evidence says that the more frequent you give yourself feedback, the better.
1: Yeah, and on a similar note, the last big takeaway was around planning ahead and actually writing out your meal plan for the week and how even just doing that can cut costs.
0: Yeah, I think this comes up in my clinic a bunch, especially when I used to have patients who were very much of low income wage. And I think I found some of them thought it was just better to buy off the dollar menu, burger, fries, soft drink here and there. And it was just much more cost effective for them. But I think the presenters actually gave a pretty good example that if you eat a meal of beans, rice, salsa, steamed veggies, half an avocado, all that stuff that you bought actually A cost per serving, only $2.20. So not as high as $3.
1: And ultimately saves
0: you about $7 per person per week and eventually kind of adds up there.
1: Yeah, $7, that's two extra coffees right there. Treyo, that was a ton of ground from these three strong estrogen presentations. What are some of your biggest takeaways?
0: I think for me, I think it's really going to be about after I encourage patients to limit salt intake, it's going to be about adding the good stuff to their diet. Getting them to that four servings of fruits and veggies a day and kind of game planning with them how that would happen. What about you, Clem? What are your biggest takeaways?
1: And for me, I like encouraging my patients to use legumes as meat extenders to make their money last longer and to switch from short to long grain rice to help with sugar control.
0: Okay, I think that's a wrap, Clem.
1: Yeah, a whole grain tortilla wrap with lots of feta cheese. <laughs>